welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey, hey, hey. What's up, everybody? Knock on podcast number 178. And guess what? This podcast is brought to you by the Knock on Nation. You. All of you out there. Do cool stuff. Share what I'm doing. Spread the word. Help people get better. All that stuff. That's what it's brought to you by. So I appreciate the heck out of that. Um, This podcast is actually going to be fueled by your questions and comments from a post that I made uh, just prior to a live feed I did on Instagram. If you're not a social media buff, which, hey, I get it. I'm not really a social media buff either. In all fairness, if, if I wasn't doing this knock-on thing, you probably would never see me on social media. That's the truth. But uh, if you don't have it and you don't know how, find a kid to show you how to load Instagram on your phone and you want to go on there. And then you also want to turn on notifications for Knock On specifically. Um, And actually on Instagram, you'll have to do a little search for Knock On TV. N-O-C-K TV. And if you do that, then it'll pull up me, knock on, and anyone else that's maybe helping me with my Instagram account at that day. And what that's going to do is it's going to allow you to see some of these live feeds that I'm doing, which are going to be extremely helpful for people because especially now in the summer when I'm able to... um, easily turn on my phone and jump into a live feed kind of during parts of my practice where I might be taking a little break or something like that. Um, It's a really easy time for me to talk about things that are fresh in my mind about maybe mistakes that I'm making or things that I've kind of been working on in practice. And then obviously um, it's a good time for people to ask questions too. So there's been some great live feeds over the last few weeks. Um, If I'm out in the backyard practicing, and especially if I'm jamming, then YouTube won't let me post um, the videos uh, because I don't have permission from who I'm jamming with. So kind of sucks. I'm in the position of either I don't really have fun shooting in my backyard and being in in my element, or I have to have silence and just completely do live feeds. So I kind of try to find the in-between. So um, try to do that. It'll be good. Facebook's good too, but I don't know. kind of burned out on Facebook. I go there some. Uh, but, yeah, I don't like how they're always hitting me up to have to pay, pay for ads in order to get you guys to be able to see what I'm doing. So I've just kind of switched to the Instagram route. Um, but these questions are all from you following one of those live feeds where I was actually in the backyard shooting with my silverback. I've been, my goal is 500 arrows a day. Um, I've been kind of stretching that out 
mornings and evenings, sometimes full stretches in a row, but it really depends. And um, I did a full week with a silverback, then I switched to a two smooth for a full week, and then I now I'm actually back to a silverback. Um, so the reason why I'm doing that is because each of these releases give you a different, a slightly different feel, but they also give you a little bit different visual on things that you may or may not be doing wrong. They're, they're all different identifiers. Now, for sure, the easiest of all of them to shoot is a knock to it. No question about it. Uh, because you just push the button, cock the trigger, and if you push the thumb button, it fires the trigger. Uh, so the Silverback's a little bit tougher because it utilizes tension. You have to actually build tension or build resistance on the release after you let your finger off the safety. Uh, and then the Too Smooth is a hinge release, so it just completely works off pivoting and movement, and it probably uh, allows you to maybe have a little bit more control on being steadier and moving slower and maybe moving a little bit, um, having a little bit less movement in your shot to get it to fire. Um, and I'll talk about those on a video another day because that is one video I really have to get finished is what is the difference between the three releases and how does each one help you? So following that silverback training, which I'm really enjoying right now, um, you guys posted comments. So I'm going to read through these uh, comments and questions and touch on a variety of subjects. I've went through all of these and, and pretty much liked the ones that I think aren't total uh, regurgitation from previous ones. Um, and they're kind of in a completely random order. So I'm not starting on um, one subject specifically. I'm just starting at the bottom and working my way to the top. And I'm enjoying a kill cliff. It's orange, blood orange, and it's morning, so it's kind of my substitute for orange juice, which I haven't drank in probably 20 years. But uh, I had a good practice session this morning too, so a lot of these silverback things are very fresh in my mind. Um, so the first one is from Matt Jones asking, "Will the skins for the silverback fit the mini silverback?" And the answer to that is they will fit, um, except there's going to be some spacing because ideally the mini silverback is um, it is the the same overall size as the the regular silverback. Um, the only downside to it, I mean, it'll fit. It's not it's not specifically made uh, for the mini, so. Because the hole is smaller, you're going to have a gap there. And the other problem, too, is um, the there's one screw on the mini silverback that actually gets covered up with, with the skin. Um, so you kind of have to watch that. It's, it is a little, bit, uh, a little bit different, a little bit off, but it's not bad. Uh, it does work, so... I'm actually, right now, while I'm talking to you, I'm doing one. 
doing right this second. It looks pretty good. Actually, it looks real good. It looks better than I thought. So, um, yeah, the hole's not that much smaller either, people. So, yeah, it'll, it will cover one of the holes on the casing. Um, so the sticker, you know, if you had to, to literally take your release apart, which they don't recommend you guys do anyway, um, if you did have you have to take your release apart, one of the holes would be covered. Um, but the other three are not. And, uh, yeah, it looks, looks pretty dang good. I'll, uh, I'll take a picture of it and post it. So that was an easy question. Next question is from Derek Miles 33. Um, when is the knock on serving jig coming out? I actually have one right here with me all, and they are completely done couple things uh with that it's it's uh pretty much a pro server by aae um a couple things with that is one i do have a um there'll be in the instructions there'll be a link to our youtube channel with a video that'll show you how to properly load a server with a spool and then i'll also um, be doing some videos that I'm sure will be recommended immediately following that that'll show you actually how to do some of your own serving um, or how to do a center serving, which I think is important. Um, a lot of people should learn this because one of the things everybody could do to really help your overall setup is replace the center serving on your your bows if you're shooting factory strings what you'll notice is when you start to see gaps in that serving or when you start to remove your loop to put a new one on and you see a big spacing that's telling you that your knocking points are sliding and that happens a lot on serve um on strings that for whatever reason sometimes they come out of the factory goods sometimes they don't uh, it's been something that's happened for a long, long time. And replacing that center serving right out of the gate is something that I do that's pretty much mandatory. And it really, really helps your longevity of keeping your tune down the road. Um, the only thing we're waiting on for that serving tool is the actual um, card that will staple to the top of the packaging, um, which I just finalize that and the reason it was taking so long is because I wanted to actually have the name of the video and make sure the video was done the how-to video on how to to load it so now that that's done and ready um, I finalized the verbiage on the header card and so now all I'll do is uh, get that to AAE and they'll print those off this week and then they'll be on the way so the jigs themselves are done they look pretty cool uh, one thing that you may notice about it is somehow in the mix, they actually reversed the knock-on logo. So instead of the knock-on logo being a left hand, it's actually a right hand. So don't wig out when you see it. It's just flipped. I kind of said, are you kidding me? But now I'm just laughing about it. So... I was going to say it's a right-handed jig, but then I don't want to freak people out and say, well, I'm actually left-handed. I, maybe I should say that just to see if someone falls for it. But yeah, it's uh, they're going to be ready in a few weeks. So be on the lookout. Be pretty cool. 
Um, also yesterday, I forgot about this. I posted, um, I should talk about this. So I posted a, um, a little video and there's some new Rattler side plates, uh, knock on side plates. I did a Patriot theme. I'm holding them right here. I did a Patriot theme, red, white, and blue. Uh, and then I also did a green and black. And what you're going to find uh, with these um, specifically is they're actually a slightly thicker material than what he normally used in the past. And the reason being is, and these are for Hoyts specifically, there are the little uh, side plate medallions to replace the Matthews on the Matthews grips as well. But these are specific for the Hoyt, and what you'll find is with this thickness, you're probably going to find that you actually get a little bit better uh, or truer center shot on your newer Hoyts. Um, what I found is the, um, the RX1s actually like to have a slightly thicker grip on the inside thumb side of the grip. Um, it'll really help you have your center shot right down the pipe, literally lined up perfectly down the center of the riser, center of the tiller bolt holes. Um, and I think the feel is a little bit better than what's stock. Um, they're actually the thickness of this, these acrylic, um, grips is actually the, the same as the bone, the antler ones that I did before. And those were done a little bit thicker before just for that same exact reason, but also because, you know, you don't want to crack the antler grips when you tighten them down too much. So um, check those out. I know that the green almost sold out overnight, um, so there may or may not be any of the green left, but the red, white, and blue is really cool as well. Um, so check those out. Uh, next question here is from Brandon Schrader's asking, how conscious of the bubble are you during your shot? Or do you level it once and then not pay attention to it anymore? So um, the level in your front sight, it's pretty critical. I mean, you really, if you're on flat ground, you know, there's, it's still going to affect accuracy, but probably not as much as when you're on angles. And what I can say is I definitely pay attention to it much more on angles than I do when I'm on flat ground. Uh, pretty much my, my routine would be to draw back, anchor, bring the tip of my nose to my string, and center my peep and my scope housing. Um, from that point, I actually then level my bow. So I'll bring that level to the center of the bubble. And then I'll acquire the target perfectly with my pin. And once I get my pin in that part of the target, a lot of times I'll glance back down to the bubble and then glance back up to my pin and I'll start my shot execution. Um, depending on the length of time, it seems like if I start to hold too long, um, then I may my bubble may start to, to fade off to one side of the level. And normally if there's movement like that in my, you know, that would more or less be in, it's not technically my peripheral vision, but I'm focusing so much on the target. And then my brain is kind of seeing the pin secondary, and then it's seeing my framing third, and it's looking at the bubble 
fourth. Um, I know it's hard to to make sense of that, but you know the subconscious is doing a lot of things at once. It's looking at exactly where I want to hit first, the pin second, the framing of the peep and the housing third, and then the level fourth. Now it may slightly change, and I may go through that process or pay more attention to the bubble if I'm shooting on uh, extreme elevation or uh, decline. So um, I don't know. I don't know really how to explain it. If I'm on flat ground, I don't look at it constantly. I'm not just sitting there saying, am I level, am I level, am I level? Because you want to have a bow that is balanced well enough to where you don't need to pay uh, pay attention to that. And if you do, you know, that's a problem in itself too, because that means you're having to manually manipulate your riser in order to get it to balance. So with my bows, I actually hang my bows, my top cam from a string, and my bows will actually sit perfectly level with, um, with that just hanging. And so if it's that easy to be level just from a hanging position then you can imagine it it you needed to be that same have that same ease um, when you're at full draw because when people are trying to have stabilizer setups that they're actually having to force into position that's not a good thing you're you're literally having to you're almost having to torque or manipulate your riser in order to level your bow and you don't really want that and that's a big reason why my stabilizer setups overall are much more simplistic than what most people have it's why i like a very light quiver it's why i like my quiver tight to my bow it's why i remove my quiver a lot um, depending on the situation Um, i'm just all about simplicity we can make archery as hard as we want. It's a lot like anything. I mean, we can we can make things super complicated. Um, but, you know, I look at it a lot like Photoshop. There's a million things that Photoshop can do, but I literally want to know the easiest and most efficient ways to be able to be consistent and repeatable using that program. And I want to do the same exact thing when it comes to my archery equipment. Um, I just want simplicity. I want repeatability, and I want to have the. Um, I want to be able to easily identify when something is different, or when I've done something um, that maybe isn't correct. So, hopefully, that helps you out in regards to that question. Um, Next question is from Rish.Mark, saying, I got my silver back in my last chance scale. I'm holding 10 pounds, so I'm setting it to 15 pounds, but as soon as I release off the safety, it fires. Okay, so what everyone out there who's bought a silver back needs to understand is everyone pulls on their back wall of their cam differently. Some people pull super aggressively simply because they're just one of these guys like I'm imagining Jocko is probably going to be almost pulling the bow into because that's just his nature. Um, however, other people 
that are just afraid of the string taking the um, the string going out of their fingers or the bow taking the string away from them. Like a lot of newer archers, they just pull a lot harder on that cam because they're really afraid of it being taken away. Whereas the more and more you shoot your bow and the more you understand your back wall and your valley and how much or how little that bow wants to, to take that string away from you, um, then you'll start to not have near the pressure. So my video, it's literally a starting point. That's all it is. And sometimes that amount of turns um, in or out, they can vary. Um, and you know that video was done with a bow that's completely different than my RX-1 now. So if I did that video on how to set up a silverback today, and I did it with an RX-1 that's got, you know, that has less holding weight than um, one of the Carbon Defiance did at the time, then I would automatically have that thing set slightly different. Five pounds over holding weight is, a, for me, that's a safe number to tell people who are beginning at this and who are going to maybe be inconsistent on their back wall and people who I want to be able to let off the safety and be able to just understand pulling through the shot for the first time. The more you start shooting and the more comfortable you get with this setup and the you know the more you understand your back wall, you'll actually probably start to taper that poundage down. And a lot of people that start out with a silverback and they're basing their poundage on that um, and they're pulling very very hard and committing very very hard to the back wall those people are going to understand pulling through the shot greatly but if you were a student of mine as you progress and I saw that you were doing that properly I would slowly start to back that pressure down so that you're able to pull through your shot without having to pull so hard that you're making the front half have some movement in it. Um, this is something that I did recently with Trevor when I worked with him. And once I understood he was doing it correctly, I just kept backing that release down lighter and lighter so that as he was pulling, he's able to pull consistent and smooth, but not at a force to where it starts to counteract the steadiness of the front arm and that's just something that you're going to have to learn over time it's going to be a development um, if you're set five pounds over and you're letting off your safety and it is literally firing that means you're too hard on the back wall and i can honestly say you're probably too hard like you need to understand the harder you pull on your back wall um you know, you'll start to change your high and low impact differences. Um, what's nice about a silverback is that it actually fires at the same resistance on your back wall each and every shot. And this is important because some bows, the high and low variance when you're shooting from different places in your valley, they can be pretty, uh, pretty vast, the variation. So by learning how much tension you have on the wall when you let your finger off the safety and then you're pulling to a tension that fires at the same time all the time you'll just find that your groups will just suck together 
And this is, um, and I think there's a question coming up pretty soon about just kind of variation and impact and how that how that changes. So yeah, if you, um, depending on your setup, you know, how tight your string is at full draw or how spongy or how solid your wall is, um, it could definitely change uh, how that bow feels, how easy it activates or, or um, how much your high and low variation could possibly be if you're really inconsistent. And again, these are identifiers. These are, these are the small little things that separate some of the best archers in the world from the average archer because the best archers in the world, their muscles are so micro-tuned to understand how that cam feels at every single inch of that draw and how it feels exactly when it breaks over and they really have just a super finesse feel of their back wall. And if you're not practicing a lot and you're the person who picks up your bow every two weeks and shoots a few arrows, you know, you'll probably find that you'll be really good for a few arrows and then things start to fall apart. And I relate that just the same as when I go and play golf. If I go play golf and I haven't played in a while, my first few shots, I'm normally pretty good. Um, everything feels fine. I might just feel a little bit stiff, but everything feels fine. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'm kind of right back to where I was. But then the more the, the more the day goes on, I start to realize, okay, I'm actually, I feel very different. Like, I, I honestly don't really know what I'm feeling. I'm trying to do this, trying to do that, trying to do this. So all that is identifiers. And I think if you have it set at five pounds over and it's firing when you let off, then I just think that you're really pulling too hard on that wall to start with. And if you are, it's going to give you more movement on your front pin than what you're going to want in the long run. Next question is from Matt Kripe. He's saying, any tips on learning to shoot with both eyes open? I have trouble focusing with both eyes open. often find myself going back to just keeping my left eye closed. So what you're going to have to do is you need to actually, I had this problem and I struggled with it for years and years. I'm super thirsty people. So you have to forgive me for taking drinks when I'm podcasting by myself and I can't take a drink while someone else is talking. then that means you have to put up with it. Um, so for years and years, what I did, and Ulmer was the same way, we actually had to clip a little blinder on our hats where it came down and it literally covers your left eye. And what that does is it prevents that double image that you see with shooting with two eyes open for your first time. And it allows your your eyes to gather more light because you're not squinting down and you'll find that your dilation is a little bit better with both eyes open and you're going to have less eye strain. So after probably two or three years, maybe it was more, um, I ended up getting to the point where one day I had forgot my blinder and I just use it all the time. I actually use one of those, um, one of those paper clips that flip over backwards. They're like black with the long silver arms and they flip over backwards and you kind of squeeze the two silver tabs. 
I had a miniature version of that and I had an old, it was actually an old room key from a hotel. Um, I painted it flat black and then I would, I bent it, I bent about a quarter inch of the, of the room key card at a 90 degree angle so that I could fasten that little clip to it and I could clip it to the left brim, left edge brim of my hat. And then what I did, it was pretty big and it was pretty close to my string. So I just kind of cut, cut it down with some scissors to where when I clipped it in the certain spot, it would cover my left eye, but it wouldn't be interfering with the string. And I just got to the point where I had crystal clear vision. I could see through scopes uh, really well. And it was just kind of something I did all the time. Didn't even think about it. Um, and then one time I somehow lost it and I was at a shoot and I'm like looking everywhere for it. And then, uh, I ended up drawing back and realizing that because I had done it that way so long, my brain actually just trained itself to not give me that double image. And ever since that day, I've been able to shoot with both eyes open without a problem. Uh, next question here is from Randall Toon. He's saying, what's the difference between the Hoyt Pro Force and the Prevail? So the Pro Force is what I'm shooting right now, aka Hulk. Um, and I was skeptical of this bow, if I'm honest, um, just because I typically have liked my target bows to be um, kind of a more traditional target bow feel. Uh, I didn't really, I knew that I was buying something that was going to feel more like a 3D setup. Um, which a lot of the 3D setups now are, they're kind of a crossover between a full long distance target bow and the hunting bows. So that I felt like this was going to be closer to that, um, to my hunting setup. So the main difference really is going to be in the cam systems more than anything. There's a difference in limbs. There's a difference in riser. Um, but more so than any of that is the cam. So on the prevails, you had um, the option between two cams. One would be a cam system that was more like the original cam and a half that Hoyt had, where it has adjustability. Um, it's going to feel like, I don't know, like kind of a timeless compound cam feel. Uh, you'll have you'd have the ability to change modules for either 65% let off or 75% let off. You have a full adjustment in the cam system. Otherwise, the next option is like the spiral cam setup for that, which is a much more aggressive cam. It has higher speeds, but the valley is short. Uh, the valley's short and it's much more demanding. And I would say both of the Prevail cams are more demanding than uh, the cam that's on the, uh, the Pro Force, which is simply uh, the same exact cam system that's on an RX-1 or an RX-1 Ultra or the XXL. So the cams, when they're a little bit more aggressive, what those make you do as a target archer is they make you be a lot more committed to the shot. You have to be very, very dynamic on the wall. You have to be on your A game. Um, you just, you really need to have continual practice and you, your level of understanding that cam feel and the operation of 
pulling against that cam exactly to get the accuracy correct, um, it's a it's a higher level. It's like two steps up from like an RX1 cam. So, and actually, like I told you, there's two cams, one of which, um, I don't know what the name of it was, but it was originally called um, like a GTX cam, which was the same as a... Um, same as like a original cam and a half um i'm just looking here i'm terrible at this right now for not knowing this for you guys i apologize but uh let's see here just looking Ooh, my stomach is growling like a mother um so yeah i'm trying to um trying to decide which of the cams when i shot the prevail which of the cams i liked and there was actually two different cams that gave me completely two different feels so it's almost like a prevail and a pro force you could argue that there's actually five different bows within those two and the reason is because with the prevail you have the option of a 40 inch one or a 37 inch one and then as well you have the technically three cam systems so with the Prevail, your cam options are, uh, well, the limbs are going to be um, like an XT2000, but you're either going to have an X3 cam, which is a GTX cam, or like an original spiral, uh, um, sorry, an original cam and a half cam. Again, that has a lot of adjustment. The wall doesn't feel as aggressive and the speed is not as high. It's actually the slowest of all of them, but it's forgiving. Then you go into the SVX cam, which is like a spiral cam, and that's going to be the fastest of all of them, but arguably the least forgiving. So with an SVX cam, I actually have to shoot those cams at about 54 pounds in order for me to be able to control them the way that I like to. Um, so there's pros and cons to that. If I take the same prevail and compare apples to apples, if I put the X3 cam on one, I can shoot that X3 cam on that target bow at about 61 pounds. 62 pounds is normally what I like to shoot for target. And it'll have a certain speed. But I can shoot the SVX cam on the same bow at about five pounds less and still have around the same speed. Now, if I was able to shoot the same exact poundage to poundage, the SVX cam would clearly be the best uh, speed out of everything. However, like I said, with myself and how much I practice, um, which to a target archer is probably on the lower end of that scale, um, I just can't control it at the full poundage that I like, so I shoot it at less poundage. Now, I really like that SVX cam for indoor archery because with indoor archery, my volume for shots is normally pretty high, um, and I like shooting around you know, 53, 54 pounds for indoor archery, so that is what I was shooting, uh, a Prevail 40 with the SVX cam. Now... Uh, when I went to the Prevail 37, 
that same cam actually felt a little bit more aggressive to me in that shorter axle axle length because the cam number had to be different to be in the same draw length size. So there's these weird trade-offs. Um, but just to give you an idea, you're looking at with a Prevail 37. You're looking, if you shot the X3 cam, you're looking at a bow that's probably going to shoot around 313 feet per second, uh, you know, 30 inches, 70 pounds. Um, so these are just these are just ATA speeds. Whereas if you have the SVX, that same exact bow and limb, but with a different cam, would be at 321. So there's about 8 feet per second difference. So again that same eight feet was it was a give and take i lost the speed because i shot less poundage but because i was practicing less i actually felt better and more accurate shooting less poundage now with the pro force this is a whole new can of worms because the pro force now um, comes in and what i like about it is kind of what I would not have liked about it if I was just a hardcore target archer still. So what the difference is that I actually like now that I probably wouldn't have liked 10 years ago is the fact that because I'm not always practicing with thousands and thousands of arrows a week, um, I actually like the ability to be a little bit lazier in my shot or make bad shots and get away with them much more and that's what the cam on the pro force is doing for me when it comes to like the torsional stability of either prevail or um, a pro force meaning like when you turn your hand how you know how that torque of the bow affects accuracy both of them are very very identical the main difference between all of them is going to be how that cam feels as you pull it back and as it breaks over. And I think because I've been shooting hunting bows much more than target bows for the last few years, this Pro Force feels so much easier for me to shoot than some of the target bows. So I almost want to say the main variation between the two is that the Prevail is more like a traditional target bow um, and you can make that aggressive with an SVX or demanding or you can make it easier to shoot with an X3 cam but you're not going to have the speed. It's going to be easy, it's going to be accurate, but it won't be as fast. The segue between all of those setups, those two those two setups and then a regular hunting bow the segue is going to be this pro force it's going to fit right in the middle um, and i will say that i actually have the gray modules on my pro force which is actually um, a slightly lower let off module than what's on um than what's on the the regular rx1s or rx1 ultras um, so in other words with the same cam system which is the hyper zt cam you do have the ability to get two different modules um, depending on the let off that you want to have so i've got the the gray module which i think is pretty much puts me at like 
more like a 70% let off versus an you know over 80 and this is at my draw length so it does vary from person to person depending on your draw length and your cam setting um, but I really like it I really do and I'm shooting mine at about 62 or 63 pounds speeds great and um, I'm just really enjoying shooting this thing a lot uh, let's see Randall Toon also asking what is my favorite UA camo pattern so my favorite pattern is the Baron more than anything that's the you know the the Ridge Reaper Forest um, is awesome but when it comes to the most effective in the most situations when I you know just looking at it from uh, from a video camera point of view the Baron just fits in in more places you know there's too many places once I go out west where it's more open and the forest pattern just would would be a lot more solid um, and then when I come here to the Midwest, yes, I could definitely say that forest probably looks better to our eye during the springtime or very early season if there's full foliage. But you can also, uh, I've also had great luck just wearing barren all the time. So that's my personal opinion. Uh, let's see, ready cooked bacon saying uh hi dad just got my silverback and my knock to it last week i plan on shooting all summer with the silverback and then maybe switching to the knock to it for hunting season that's a definitely probably a good plan um if you decide to do that uh so then uh the next part of that question is i've heard you say that the silverback will magnify your mistakes is there some kind of guide to what those are telling you I started to hit low during my session last night towards the end and figured it was just my form breaking down for fatigue. Um, so, and then he went on to some other questions, but I'm going to just stop with that one. So yeah, it does, um, it does definitely magnify mistakes and you hitting low. I actually had that happen to me several ends this morning mainly on my arrows that were later in my groups. Uh, so as I started to get tired and as I started to find myself creeping on my back wall um, and not being hard into my wall and pulling through, uh, pulling through normal, then I had, uh, I had problems. And yeah, I go low. And then sometimes if I, sometimes if I, pull my hand out and away from my face or down and away or try to watch my arrow um, I'll hit low right um, sometimes if I'm actually um, not paying attention to as I'm pulling and pulling back as if I'm not paying attention to my framing with my peep and my in my sight alignment a lot of times I will start to hit slightly left as well um, so yeah it, it's I don't have a guide on what those are um, but certainly when you're weak on your shots or if you're starting to pull down you're gonna go low and this is common I do this myself so if I draw back I come to my anchor I get everything centered in I let off my safety and I start to pull when I start to get tired my rear elbow will start to come down and when your rear elbow starts to tip down then as you're pulling, you're actually pulling that string down away from your nose 
more than pulling directly in line. So once that shot starts to break, your movement is already dropping down and essentially that's where your arrows go. So uh, pay attention to that. Tip of the elbow up. That's something that you see me do a lot with students. If you've watched me in live feeds, when I see that rear elbow start to tip down and the wrist start to bend, I'll touch that elbow, lift that elbow up so that as they're pulling, they're pulling through and they're not pulling down. You know, you don't want your release hand to be pulling down towards your straight down towards your shoulder if you're using bicep to pull through that's going to happen and you're going to get those low shots uh, let's see next question is from jeff birdwell saying with the silverback we always talk about pull 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 but should there also be a corresponding push with the bow hand um, or should the bow arm just be completely dead so there's definitely people out there that talk about push and pull. I'm not really big into the push um, because I'm more of a pull through and as I'm pulling through, if your front arm is in the correct alignment, you're gonna naturally feel there being more and more pressure pushed as that grip is pushing evenly on your front bow hand. If you decide that it actually helps your ability to be steady, and if you feel like it actually um, helps you get your shots more consistent by as you're pulling, gradually, slowly, and I'm saying this like, I'm stressing this, it needs to be very minimal, you can just give that front a little push as you're going, then yes, it's, it is acceptable. I don't really coach that way because what happens is if you start to push with the front hand and you don't have a proper front hand position and you don't have a proper torque-free grip, then you will actually start to manipulate the riser and you'll find that your accuracy will actually decrease because if you're pushing forward but your hand your front hand position is incorrect as you push on the riser you'll start to turn the riser or twist the riser so essentially if you're twisting the riser think of what's in the front of that riser what's in the front of the riser is your bow sight so as you start to push, if you have any type of torsional variation in your grip, as you push, you will start to turn that sight. And as you turn it, essentially, you're aiming off the object. And as your subconscious is bringing that pin to the center of the target, you're actually moving yourself off the target, even though you feel like you're you're bringing yourself on. So you really have to watch that when you want to incorporate pushing. If you push with any type of inconsistency in the front hand, it will change your left and rights fast. But that's not to say uh, if you have a good hand position that that little bitty, and I'm going to say it this way, if, if you're 95% pull, and 5% push on the front, I would be okay with that. If you're doing, you know, I would say if you're doing anything less than 90-10, then 
I would say you're going to run into problems at some point, especially once you start to get on uh, shots with variation in elevation. Okay. Uh, let's see. Pes, Pesquimone, I guess is his name, saying good morning. Uh, Dud, I went back to the Silverback after a few months of the knock to it. The shots really re feel really good, but my groups have shifted low. Is that typical? Also, can you comment on the application of each of your releases? Um, I definitely need to do a video on that. I talked about that a little bit earlier on the variation part. Um, but yeah, so the difference that you're going to see... And again, depending on how much uh, you've backed out your limbs or what your bow's natural string tension is, um, you can have some difference in impact with a knock to it or a silverback. Um, but when strings are tight and things are taut and when you are consistent with your back wall pull and when you're consistent with... Um, you know, with that shot activation, then they're going to hit. They're they're going to hit the same spot. Um, if you're hitting low like that, what you could be doing is again pulling more with the bicep than you are with your back. Your elbow might be a little bit more down, and you might be trying to activate that that silverback by pulling more with the bicep and pulling down as that shot's breaking. Instead of with the knock to it, you can probably be you're comfortable with your your elbow being up higher. You're probably not pulling through near as dynamic as you would with your silverback, and you're probably just kind of sitting there waiting and then making the shot happens. If you're an aimer with one release and you're a puller with another release, you can have variation in your impact. People that just focus on aiming. Uh, you know, and this is one of my problems with some of the pros out there that talk aim, 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 aim. There's literally a few handful of pro archers in the world that shoot con as consistent as they do. And all they do, they're really focused on aiming. But you have to realize that the number of people in that window is so small that it just statistically for you to try to put yourself in that realm you're already um at a big uphill battle because aiming is for people that have such a i guess such a elite level of understanding of their cam and their back wall and the feel of their bow and you know you're talking about pros that literally will change diameters of their cables. They'll move the the draw pegs on their cams to very specific places. They'll put cam stops on. They'll change their cable diameters. These are people that go through extreme um, tweaks to make sure that each year their bow feels exactly how their muscles have been trained to understand for hundreds of thousands of shots and they're aiming and yeah they're getting more steady and they're more consistent and they also have this super elite level of being able to manipulate a trigger in order to get a surprise shot while maintaining steadiness that most people will never ever achieve and if 
your goal is to get to that level and that understanding and, and literally make that uphill climb, then I guess that's something you can do. But I'm just telling you, my method of coaching gets the biggest percentage of people to a better level than they've ever been because of the techniques that I talk about. So, you know, pay attention to that. Um, if you're making good shots with the silverback and all of a sudden now you're hitting low, it it may just be that, you know, one, you could have uh, a little adjustment you need in your technique where maybe you're, like I said, you're pulling through down and your elbow as you're shooting, you can watch your elbows, like both of your elbows, if you think of yourself, if you look at both of your elbows, they're almost both going like down and back um, as you shoot, the same as like if a bird's flying. Um, that's not that good. You want to have that elbow up higher so that your release hand forearm is more parallel to the front arm. And as you're pulling through, you know, that shot or that release hand and the shot isn't coming down. It's actually coming back, um, as much as you can. It's kind of a fine line there too. Um, so, uh, next question here is from JCA pause, uh, saying when I shoot, I feel like my bow kicks out into the side directly away from me. Like your shot looks, um, Oh, and not like your shot looks. Wait, that was terrible. I'm going to start over. Um, when I shoot, I feel like my bow kicks out into the side not directly away from me like your shot does. What can I look at to fix this problem? Is my draw too long? Um, I also feel like my grip and my riser is neutral. Um, so what's going on? Um, so this could be a couple things. One, the direction that your bow kicks could certainly be the bow itself or the system itself. Um, some systems in your account's private, so I can't see can't look at you um, and the other thing too is how your bow is weighted if your bow has weights um, or if you have extreme stabilizer weights it can definitely affect how it kicks but it also can be related to your grip position or even the type of grip on the particular bow that you shoot some bows have grips that I just don't like and um, I would definitely get rid of them because the shape of the grip and how that grip applies pressure on your hand, it does affect the direction that that bow will travel when it projects forward. Um, a lot of Olympic level recurve shooters spend a lot of time uh, alternating their grips just so that the bow will project forward and not have a crazy twist in it. So those are kind of the reasons uh, stabilizer weights, quiver rate weights, rear weights, too much weight in the front. Um, also, if your bow naturally twists when you draw it back, like some of the, um, I don't know about the ones this year, but in the past, some of the shooters that I worked with that had some of the elite bows, there was a tremendous amount of torsional twist with them. Um, the stabilizers would literally be pointing off to the side when they'd be at full draw. And obviously, once the bow is shot, it comes back. That stabilizer weight is shooting back to the center. 
um, once the, r the riser isn't being twisted anymore, it's shooting back to the center, and obviously that motion is going to swing all the way past the center line before it returns to it. So it does have a little bit more torsional uh, string torsion or uh, torsional instability, and I call it riser swing. Uh, next question is from L Jonathan, thirty-five, saying. How do you handle other archers that can't take advice? Uh, I don't handle them. Yeah, uh, if you're not coachable, then I'm not your coach. That's it's that easy. I'll um, a lot of times I'll tell people my personal opinion on what can help them. I'll give them my advice, um, and then normally if I see after a few weeks they're just starting to not you know not do something that i pointed out before and i'll be like hey remember to remember to blah 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 I'll be like, okay yep yep all right that that's one thing but if you um if i show you how to do something and then the next time i see you you're just doing the same thing or if i'm watching your stuff and you're just going back to what you want to do then that's it i'm done um I call those people assholes. Uh, there's actually a definition of an asshole. I'll have to, I don't know where it's at. I'll have to look it up. But uh, yeah, there's a, there's actually a definition. I have a little meme of an asshole. I'm opening it on my computer right now. Um, oh, it's not, it didn't open. But yeah, uh, it's literally a person who always asks you something but never does it and does the same thing that they want to do no matter what. That's an asshole. So I normally don't work with assholes. Um, I'll normally talk to them a time or two and then I move on. Uh, next question. Uh, well, Randall, you asked another question. That's three in one thing. I'm going to answer it, but next time be courteous to other people. Saying what um, is the item number of the UA wristband on my rangefinder? So on my rangefinder setup, I do have a wristband around it so it doesn't clunk into my binoculars. I don't know what the item number is, dude. I got it at like a shield store years and years ago. Just go in the tennis section. It's a tennis wristband. I just uh, go into a tennis store and and find one. Um, otherwise, you probably go to to the UA website and. You know, I guess um, look in the accessories aisle in their cart area, and I think you'll find some. Uh, all right, next question. Neil Melter says, "I know it's a long way from whitetail season, but what are your thoughts on getting to and leaving stands stealthily?" property I hunt this year is 80 acre soybean field with tree lines on three sides. Should I try to walk the tree lines straight into my stand or take more of a field approach to it? Thanks for your teaching. So yeah, no matter when it comes to whitetails, um, stealth in, stealth out is the name of the game. Um, if you're detected going in or out, probably, oops, dropped silver back, more than, uh, more than once, Sometimes it only takes once, but if it's more than once, you're done with a mature deer. So uh, entrance and exit strategy is always top priority for me. Um, I'm a big, I like bikes a lot because it minimizes the amount of scent that's down on the ground. Um, but yeah, if 
if it's obviously if you're hunting a food source if it's uh for evening hunt obviously everything's going to be in the bedding so it's important to have the ability to get to that stand while utilizing cover which is a big reason why um like when i start with a lot of my farms i'll make sure that i either like plant um like switch grass or you can plant uh egyptian wheat um or indian grass along the edges of things that you need to walk or even getting the farmer to leave like three rows of corn around the entire perimeter so that you can walk in on the inside of that and everything in the timber isn't seeing you so if it's an evening hunt yeah i would certainly utilize the field uh for in and out uh for like a morning hunt obviously the most likely the deer are going to be in the food source then returning to the bedding so i would actually try to find a way to come back door to that bedding uh, without ever uh, interrupting the field and that way everything can exit the field into the bedding uh, without knowing I'm there. That would be my strategy for that. Uh, okay, J underscore Smith 13, do you practice shooting at different angles? Um, such as something that would may mimic a shot from a tree or maybe an uphill shot? Yes, dude, of course. You have to practice how you play. Um, always do that. And, you know, make sure if you're new to uh, following um, what everything we're doing, make sure you go through and dive in to the YouTube channel and check out some of the stuff I got out there. For those of you, I never posted it, I forgot to, but um, just the other day, I actually posted another video, um, kind of a shot of the week style video. It's actually a downhill shot uh, in bear country. It's a downhill shot. I talk specifically about all the things that I would do for that shot in a hunting situation. And it also dives a little bit deeper and more thorough into shooting on elevations um, as compared to the video that I posted a few weeks before that. So there's actually two videos, one on uphill, one on downhill, um, and those will be good for you. And yeah, they are hunting scenario shots. And that's a big reason why 3D is cool too. 3D archery or field archery is because it actually mimics a lot of the type of things that you'll be doing uh, from a hunting situation. Let's see. Uh, Kyridge's skull works. Um, saying when I pull through my shot with the silverback I can feel the string moving and my sight picture changes in my peep uh, my bow is timed and the, and the cable stops are hitting at the same time I'm not pre am I not preloading enough or do is my release too stiff so the release could certainly be too stiff um, it could definitely be too stiff if you're bending the string that much uh, the other thing too which I'm looking at your stalking your page right now which actually looks good um, for those of you who back out your limb bolts and you have low uh, string tension that could be a problem as well um, but just looking here well I'm watching you shoot a knock to it in the snow and oh ooh, man I don't want to burn you down, but dude, 
That picture on May 5th, you got after it on the trigger on that knock to it. So I'm glad you got a silverback. This is going to be important for you. And it looks like you've been training quite a bit on it, which is awesome. That's good. Um, I would have liked to have seen a video of you with your silverback. Main thing is you do want to pull that, you know, pull your your index finger along the base of that jaw. But, you know, unless your release is set ridiculously stiff, you shouldn't have to be moving that much. There should be a minimal amount, but that's okay. No different than you look at an Olympic style recurve shooter who's pulling through a clicker, they're actually pulling that index finger right along the base of that jaw as well as they're pulling through that clicker. And then once they hit that click, that string's uh, getting let go. So yeah, don't mind feeling some of that movement because that movement is also consistency. And in the long run, um, you're gonna be better uh, because of that. But if you feel like it's too much and you feel like you're pulling too hard, then yeah, don't be afraid to take a turn off that uh, off that release off that uh, tension screw. Next question is uh, from forty five Mitch Hall eighty nine. Um, I have a question for the podcast. Hoping it's not too late. Hoyt po- podium forty spiral cams, fifty eight and a half pound thirty one inch draw. I was shooting at the club last week eighty yards. Um, my arrows are three hundred ninety eight grain. Shooting cheaper brand arrows. They have about a .006 straightness. My arrow flight looked good, but will a better arrow um, give me tighter groupings? So absolutely. This is a very, very important question. So there's actually a statistic. um, I can try to pull it up here because I used to talk about it. Um, Let me see. I used to talk about it in my schools so let me see if i can find it while we're while we're talking um so there used to be a statistic i'm gonna pull it up right now hopefully my podcast doesn't drop because it's a oh oh wait uh yeah oh boy oh boy oh boy literally every font that's in this old presentation needed to be downloaded by my computer so um, just look in here. Uh, okay, here it is. I'll give you the statistic. I haven't used this presentation in a long time. Um, so um, this is an importance of um, pretty much of spine variation and straightness, okay? So a spine variation with as little as plus minus of a 0.15 can cause a loss of two points in a 12 arrow Olympic round. That's that's literally a 70 meter shot at a 10 ring that I don't know the exact diameter of it, but let's just say it's slightly bigger than the than the size of a Coke can. The cool statistic is 80% of Olympic matches at the world level are decided within a margin of two points. So any arrow that you have that's over two thousandths in straightness can cause a variation in points as much as two at 70 meters. 
obviously the closer your um, the closer your target is, the less you're going to notice that. But spine and straightness certainly affects accuracy. So I would venture to say, and this is a big reason why um, my specifications and parameters were so tight with these axis arrows and the fmjs that i'm coming out with um you know for years i always did pre-selections with my arrows in the lot and the arrows that i build for clients that i have that are that i'm doing custom builds for like you know when i did arrows for for joe um, you know, I may go through 15 arrows to find 12 that spun exactly how I wanted. And when I would make him ones that were super high match, I may go through more than that to find 12 arrows that literally spin like glass. And I would tell him, these are your hunting ones. Don't bang these up. Um, because it, it was an extreme selection. So with these knock-on match grades they're all going to be inside of that they're actually going to be a thousandth or less for straightness and spine consistency which is a huge reason why they're going to group better and yet you know if you're comparing them to other fmjs or axis that don't have to go through machines to either be checked for that or you know the ones that literally don't make the cut and end up becoming uh, a different arrow or something like that, then yeah, it's, um, you know, that's why you pay the money difference. That's why you are paying the difference. But, you know, I can tell you that even with a perfect shot, absolutely perfect out of a shooting machine, a bow will score completely different with arrows that have different straightness and spine consistent tolerances so you absolutely have to pay attention to that dude and if you change arrows you'll notice a major difference and i guarantee you if you're buying arrows right now that are just cheaper by the dozen and if you're going to get some of these new match grade arrows that we're going to have i guarantee you you're going to be more accurate just because of the fact that the straightness value is higher or as high as you can get it's as high as you can get period that's it it's going to be that high it's literally the best that they can offer me um, and it's a big reason why i'll have limitation to how many i have access to because you know they just flat out told me you know we can't can't literally go through you know thousands of arrows to get you know and then have a hundred that that don't suit your tolerance and i mean every company deals with that but um you know i am i did want the cream of the crop it's i'm gonna pay more for them um you guys will pay more for them too uh if i'm honest but it's because you know we're getting a select grade and that's and the reason why is for that statistic i just told you uh, what would you, this is from Sean, Sean Cabe, what? Cabes, Sean Cabes. Um, what would you recommend someone to do to dull down or camo their silverback? So it's not so obvious. Um, listen, I have a lot of people that shot silverbacks and I've never had game spooked to it. 
um, especially if it's in your hand. It's not like you're wearing it on your hat or anything. Um, but we make skins. Uh, you can get a skin. Uh, I'm not trying to sell that either. I'm just telling you flat out. Like right now, look at my Instagram. Well, you, dude, you made a post. Now that I'm looking at this, Sean, you made a post on a post that I made, which literally has a close-up of a silverback with a black and green skin on it that looks camo. Get that. Be perfect. Um, but yeah, don't worry about, uh, definitely don't have to worry about a release spooking game. I have used it many times. Sharon and Harry have used it for 10 years or better. Uh, between the two of them, I don't, I don't ever remember a game seeing us and running off. So, um, I think you'll be good, but I understand where you're coming from. It's probably, it's kind of basic rule. Uh, let's see, getting close to the end here. Uh, Mag 25X. I've had to play around with my peep height in relation to my man sized 27 inch draw uh, to better my anchor. It sounds like a Brad of all Brad's draw length to me. Uh, in two videos, I've seen you use a half hitch and over and under knots in order to tie in your peep. Is there advantage to either or which do you prefer? And then he gives a shout out to Tim Kitts uh, for helping him out. So, um, so he's talking about the two different methods that I've shown in videos to tie in your peep site. One is like a half hitch with a back serve. Then the other one is over and unders. Um, so it really comes down to, to speed. If you have the time, I like the over and unders. I think it looks cleaner. It looks more professional. When I do builds for people, I actually do it that way. It's a little bit more secure and it's a little bit tighter. Um, if I was doing it in a shop, especially if it was a newer customer that I think we might end up having to adjust this peep over time, I, a lot of times I would do those half hitch with the back serve simply because it allows you to move them around a little bit easier. They aren't as tight on the string, but both are good. Um, just one's faster than the other and one looks a little cleaner so it's just a matter of what you're going for um, let's see uh, Zia let's Z <laughs> Z sweet and low seven is saying can you explain why you prefer a two finger release as opposed to three or four I personally prefer a four but was wondering if there is technical advantage there is a technical advantage um, the technical advantage is when you have less fingers on a release, you have less ability to manipulate the angle of the release as well as the rocker position of the release. Um, the rocker position on even a silverback, I can tell you right now, go out, if you have a silverback, do your thing like you normally would, let off the safety, and one time as you pull through, maybe have about 60% or 70% of the of the pressure on the middle finger as you pull through. Then do the same thing but put about 70% of the pressure on the index finger and pull through. What you're going to find is when you pull through with slightly more pressure with the index finger, you're actually going to get more consistent in how that release fires and you're going to feel much more consistent with 
um, the amount of pressure it's taken to, to, pull, to make that release go off. So that right there is a direct, uh, a direct comparison of what I call rocker position and how that release is rocked forward or backwards in your hand, which in turn changes the different pressure that the loop actually has on the jaw itself sometimes where it how long it's hung on the jaw before it comes out or where it's sitting on the jaw as it comes out um, so that's your rocker position and what it controls the next one is the actual angle so the more fingers you have on the release the more ability you have for um, for your, to change your angle and what I find is when people start to shoot four finger releases, they normally don't like to have their other fingers floating. So what I'll find is a lot of people that are shooting a four finger release, they're way more apt to turn that release hand more vertical so that they're feeling their, their ring finger and their pinky on the face. The more vertical you turn the release, the more important the consistency of that angle is. Because once you start to turn a release to the point where you're feeling your ring finger and especially your pinky finger, any variation in that, even as much as five degrees, will change your left and right input uh, impact. Um, and I've pretty much done that. Uh, pretty much done that on shooting machines. So I know. Uh, let's see here. Just there's a few more. There's only a few more questions. I might as well grab them. So BMO underscore VA. I practice with lighted X knocks on my FMJs. However, I find myself drawn to the lit knock on my second and third shot, even if it isn't center. Um, any tips? Yeah, that's called a suck hole. Uh, happens a lot in target archery. Uh, it kind of sucks when the first guy steps up and shoots one about two inches right of the 12 ring out in the eight and he's got this big old green and black knock and every as much as you want to aim off that your subconscious is just sucking over there and it's just looking at it and looking at it so and I think it's kind of a clear picture of when you're staring at something your subconscious ends up making it go there and that's a big reason why I like to look exactly at the spot I want to hit and let the subconscious move the pin and control the pin. My vision kind of goes from the, the spot I'm trying to look at to my pin just a little bit, but it's normally going immediately back to the, where I want to hit. And when you do that, you're going to be less likely to want to fall into that suck hole uh, if you're staring at your pin and you're aiming more, then a lot of times the subconscious sends one right into that spot, even if you don't want to. Um, <laughs> the, 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 what I said on this post was, uh, the post I made where all these questions are coming from is uh, Silverbacks at Sunrise. And uh, Rusted Horseshoe says... Um, if only Silverback Sunrise was a drink, what would it contain? That sounds like a contest to me. That sounds like a contest. That's going to be a giveaway. 
be on the lookout for that. I'm going to do a contest on what a silverback at sunrise drink. I'm going to give away a prize for whoever comes up with the best drink for that. So be ready or be prepping it if you're listening to this podcast. Uh, let's see here. Um, well, the last question is J underscore Aberman is saying he's getting into archery this year and he's torn between the different types of releases, either a wrist strap or a handheld, what advice would you offer for a beginner? I would tell you to go to the Archery 101 on the Knock on Archery YouTube channel, watch Archery 101, then 102. And I would strongly encourage you to start out with a handheld release. I guarantee you'll be a better archer in the future. No question about it. People, I answered literally all the questions that weren't regurges out of 70 questions on this post we're an hour and 20 minutes in and i've got 13 percent left on my battery barely got any kill cliffs left and i am completely completely pumped that you all are listening can't thank you enough for that you're great and uh better go get your freaking barista skills going silverbacks at sunrise it's going to be the new drink that's going to be the new thing and uh you know what if this drink's good i'm going to promise you this uh next time i'm on jre if i get invited back i'm going to drink a silverback at sunrise on the podcast so Appreciate the heck out of all you guys. Get out. Enjoy the weekend. I've got another 350 arrows to get done. So I am getting ready to do it. You guys are awesome. Check you later. Knock on. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. Knockonarchery.com.